Welcome to Network, the show dedicated to helping pastors and churches cast the net of the gospel. I'm Scott Smith, your host. In our last episode, number 60, we talked about the upcoming Harvest Georgia Crusade and how your church can be involved in using that event to bring people to Christ right there in your community. As a follow-up, I'm going to play for you on this episode the message that Pastor Greg preached for Georgia Baptists at our recent REACH conference in Marietta in April. You'll enjoy this message entitled, First Century Principles for Reaching the 21st Century. But first, a little more about Greg Laurie. Greg is Senior Pastor of the Harvest Christian Fellowship in Riverside, California, as well as Irvine, California. And he began his pastoral ministry at age 19 by leading a Bible study of 30 people. Since then, God has transformed that small group into a church of some 15,000 people, making Harvest one of the largest churches in America. In 1990, Laurie began holding large-scale public evangelistic events called Harvest Crusades. Since that time, more than 5.2 million people have attended Harvest Crusades across the United States in locations ranging from their annual event at Angel Stadium in California, the event to which I've been myself, to Madison Square Garden in New York City, to Dodger Stadium in Los Angeles. Harvest Crusade events have also been held in Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. Nearly 1.7 million people have attended Harvest events virtually via live or archived internet webcasts. Laurie is the featured speaker of the nationally syndicated radio program, A New Beginning, which is broadcast on more than 800 radio outlets around the world. A New Beginning is one of the most popular Christian podcast downloads on iTunes. In addition, Harvest produces a weekly 30-minute television program called GregLaurie.tv, which airs weekly on the Trinity Broadcasting Network, the Church Channel, and American Forces Network TV. In addition to speaking, Laurie has authored over 70 books, including, as I see it, Hope for Hurting Hearts, and his new book, Tell Someone. Enjoy this message by Pastor Greg entitled, First Century Principles for Reaching the 21st Century, delivered to Georgia Baptists at our REACH 2016 Spring Conference. Good to see all of you. It's great to be back in Georgia again. You know, I first visited your state in the mid-90s. Was it 1994 when Billy Graham was here? How many of you were here for the Billy Graham crusade? Yeah, I was there for that. And uh, then we did a crusade ourselves here in Augusta, Georgia in the early part of 2000, maybe 2004 or 5. And then I preached one night in Athens, Georgia. So I'm looking forward to finally coming to Atlanta uh, for this uh, three-night crusade that we're going to be having. But I would like to start with a word of prayer and then I'm going to share with you a message with the title 21st, or excuse, yeah, 21st Principles, excuse me, First Century Principles for Reaching the 21st Century. And I don't know who's running the lights, but if I could get a little light here on my notes, that would be a great help. I have all that light coming. To, ah, very perfect. Thank you. All right, let's pray. Father, we ask that you will help all of us to have even a greater urgency to bring the gospel to our generation. We know that there are great opportunities before us and great challenges as well. So I pray that you will bless every pastor, every evangelist, every leader in this room and those that will hear this message 
We're thankful for the privilege of preaching the gospel. Help us to know how to do it even more effectively. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, after I'm done speaking, uh, one of my good friends, and I think one of the greatest preachers in America, is going to come up here and speak. I'm talking about Pastor James Merritt. And the way I know James is one of the greatest preachers in America is because he told me five minutes ago. No, he didn't really. But, but actually he is. He really is. You know, every morning, every Sunday morning when I get ready for church, he happens to be on TV. So as I'm cooking up my two things I know how to make, uh, oatmeal and scrambled eggs, I'm very imaginative there, uh, I'm listening to James' message. And the only problem with listening to James is you want to take notes and then your eggs are going to get burned, right? But many times I'll stop and I'll write down some of those things and I'll steal his statements and never give him credit. And so uh, you're in for a great treat in hearing Pastor James. Well, as I said a few moments ago, my message title is First Century Principles for Reaching the 21st Century. I became a Christian at the age of 17. I started preaching at 19 and I started pastoring at 20. It was 1972 and Richard Nixon was president. The Beatles had just broken up and Elvis was still alive. The Godfather was the number one movie in America. Michael Jackson was still a little boy singing Rockin' Robin and VCR had not been invented yet nor had cell phones, fax machines, or internet. No personal computers existed yet. But there was a cutting edge new technology that was just coming out called the video game and the first one out was Pong. Remember Pong? That's all it was. It was an amazing time. Startup churches were virtually unheard of. The phrase megachurch had not been coined yet and it was different. In fact, back in those days, a tweet was something the bird did in your backyard. There was no social media. But we took a venture of faith as young kids and we started a church. We didn't even know we were starting a church. It was actually a Bible study for young people. I was in my early 20s. Most of my congregation was my age. One day one of uh, the folks come and said, we need to start a ministry for children. And I said, well, you gotta be in charge of it because you're the only one with a child. And that's how our youth ministry started. Then we decided we needed to start an outreach for people that were older, you know, over 30. So we started Sunday mornings. We actually started with a Sunday night and then started a Sunday morning and now fast forward 40 years and here I am today. I was 20 then and I'm 63 now. I've gone from acid rock to acid reflux. Um, when I bend down to tie my shoe, I wonder what else I can do while I'm down there. Uh, my idea of weightlifting now is standing up. But the good news is, is, is I'm up to 100 crunches a day. Trying to get in shape, 100 crunches a day. Pretty good, right? Nestle crunches, you should try them, they're amazing. No, but a lot has happened since that time. And you know, we look back and we're thankful for all that the Lord did in our church. But one thing that we have seen is, you know, if you want to continue to reach each new generation, you need to have a flexibility. You know, sometimes I think in the church we're flexible where we should be inflexible and we're inflexible where we should be flexible. Does that make sense? Here's where we should be inflexible. Inflexible in the teaching of the Word of God, in the honoring and worship of God, 
in the proclamation of the gospel. The church exists for three reasons. The glorification of God, the edification of the saints, and the evangelization of the world. Or a simpler way to sum it up, upward, inward, and outward. We gather together to honor the Lord, to glorify the Lord, to teach the word of God and build up believers, and then to take the gospel out. But we can't be flexible there. But here's where we can be flexible. With musical styles, with technology, with changing things in our culture without in any way compromising our essential message. And sometimes we can get very rigid. I heard about a man that was very sick. So he went with his wife down to see the doctor. The doctor did a series of tests on him and, and the doctor asked if the man's wife would come into his office and she did. And the doctor sat down with her and said, ma'am, your, your husband is very ill. In fact, he's on the brink of dying. He has a stress-related disease. And if something doesn't happen immediately, he is gonna die. But if you will do the following, your husband will recover. For the next six months to a year, you have to create a stress-free environment. And by that I mean you don't pressure him, you don't tell him about any of the problems you're having at home, you make him whatever he wants for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, you constantly smother him with affection and tell him how much you love him. And again, if you do this for six months to a year, your husband will make a full recovery. The wife said, thank you, doctor. She left his office and got into the car with her husband. They're driving home. The husband asked, what did the doctor say? She said, you're gonna die. <laughs> See, some of us would rather watch a patient die than change our methodology. And I think if we want to reach the culture before us now, we're going to have to flex with the way things are changing. And there are a lot of great opportunities before us. So I want to go back to the book of Acts. How many of you brought your Bible with you? You better, your preachers, come on. Okay, so grab your Bible and turn to Acts chapter 17. I'm going to read a few verses in a moment. But this is a very familiar story of the Apostle Paul bringing the gospel to the city of Athens, which was the intellectual center of the world at the time. It was a pagan culture, and I think you would agree, and noting that our culture today is a lot like Athens of the first century. They had all these gods they worshiped there uh, in Athens. They had Zeus, who was the king of all the gods. They, they had Athena, the goddess of heroic a behavior, Epaphrodite, the goddess of love, Morpheus, the god of dreams, Nike, the goddess of shoes, and many others. And one uh, ancient writer said there were some 30,000 gods in Athens with a small g. So as Paul walked around and checked the city out, there were all these images erected to these various deities which brought him to the Areopagus, which was the open square, and there Paul brought his message, and from that message we will find first century principles for reaching the 21st century. So let's uh, read a few verses together, Acts 17, verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply troubled by all the idols he saw everywhere in the city. He went into the synagogue to debate with the Jews and God-fearing Gentiles, and he spoke daily in the public square to all who happened to be there. He had a debate with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers when he told them about Jesus and his resurrection. And they said, this babbler has picked up some strange ideas. Others said, oh, he's pushing some foreign religion. Then they took him to the council of philosophers saying, come and tell us more about this new religion. 
for you're saying some startling things and we want to know what it's all about. It should be explained that the Athenians as well as the foreigners in Athens seem to spend all of their time discussing the latest ideas. So Paul stood before the council and he addressed them as follows. Men of Athens, I notice you are very religious. For I was walking around and I saw your many altars and one of them had this inscription on it, to the unknown God. You've been worshiping him without knowing who he is. Now I wish to tell you about him. We'll stop there. I remember when I spoke in Athens, Georgia, I actually stood up and said, men of Athens, I just had to say it. I've actually been to Athens, Greece as well, but it was more exciting to say it in Athens, Georgia. Now there were two primary groups that Paul was addressing here, the Stoics and the Epicureans. The Epicureans basically lived for the pursuit of pleasure. They believed that there was no order to the universe, just live for the moment. But the Stoics were different. They were more disciplined with almost a Buddhist-like worldview. Uh, nothing really changes when you get down to it. And what is the culture we're called to speak to today? To today? Well, according to an article by USA Today, the largest religious group in America are called the nuns. Not the N-U-N-S, but the N-O-N-E-S. Uh, this article says, for decades, if not centuries, America's top religious brand has been Protestant no more. Where do they go? Nowhere, actually. They didn't switch to any new religious brand. They just let go of any religious affiliation or label. This group called the Nuns is now the nation's second largest category after Catholics and outnumbers the top Protestant denomination, the Southern Baptists. Now what do the Nuns believe? Answer, nothing in particular. They're just open to spirituality. Nuns believe in astrology and reincarnation and 58% say they feel a deep connection with nature and the earth. This to a large degree is the kind of worldview we're dealing with today. As Malcolm Muggeridge said, and I quote, all new news is old news happening to new people. How do you reach a culture like this? Apologist Rabbi Zechariah said this, and I quote, how do you reach a generation that listens with his eyes and thinks with its feelings, end quote. How can we impact the 21st century? Here's my answer. With biblical preaching and teaching. We offer theology without apology. Which brings me to my first point. We should not be ashamed of the fact that we are preachers. We're preachers. How many of you are preachers? Raise every hand. Don't be embarrassed by that. I'm called to be a preacher of the gospel. I'm called to be a teacher of the word. Listen, I am not a life coach. I don't know who coined that phrase, but a popular trend among some pastors today is they want to have a talk instead of give a message. They want to be a life coach and an encourager, or they think they're a stand-up comedian or a political commentator. No. I am called to declare the whole counsel of God. I'm called to bring the word of God. And the last time I checked, his word will not return void. God has given me two primary weapons to reach my culture. He's given those weapons to all of us. What are they? Uh, boycott and protest. No. Register and vote. Again, no, though there's a place for that. The two weapons that God has given us to reach our culture, which are not used enough, are prayer and preaching. 
First, we have to pray for America. I was asked in an earlier pastor's meeting that we had, you know, is there any hope for America? And if the answer is yes through a political solution, I would say no, there isn't. But there is spiritual hope. We need an awakening. We need a revival. We need to pray for our country like never before. And then secondly, we are to preach the word of God, preach the gospel to our culture. Why? Because preaching is the primary way that God reaches lost people. 1 Corinthians 1.21 it says, In the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, but it pleased God through the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. Or a better translation, the foolishness of the preach thing. See what we do in Harvest Crusades, like we have them in Southern California and around the country, and just had one in Texas, and we're gonna have one in September right here in Georgia. Uh, we're proclaiming the gospel without apology. And as I said in that little video, the days of saying evangelistic events are over, are over. God will still honor his word. So we need to keep that in mind. And that brings me to point number two. To preach effectively, we must have a burden for lost people. We must have a burden for lost people. Notice that verse 16 says, Paul was waiting for them in Athens and was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. This phrase, greatly distressed, could be translated, his soul was exasperated. He was angry. You know, there's a place for anger, righteous indignation. Not to scream and yell, but to take action. And Paul was grieved to see the absolute absence of the living God. And I think maybe one of the reasons we're not reaching the lost is if we're brutally honest, we don't care about the lost. How dare I say that to a bunch of preachers? You say, Greg, I preach the gospel every Sunday in my church. Nice. When's the last time you shared the gospel one-on-one -on -one with somebody? When you weren't working as a Christian, not as a pastor, not inviting them to your church, just as a follower of Jesus, when is the last time you engaged someone with the message of the gospel? See, if you don't care, your people are not gonna care. And if there's a mist in the pulpit, there's gonna be a fog in the pew. But if you have a passion for lost people, listen, that's gonna come through your preaching and your people who listen to you are gonna hear that as well. Uh, the great British preacher C.H. Spurgeon once said, and I quote, the Holy Spirit will first move them by moving you, talking about non-believers. If you can rest without their being saved, they will rest too. But if you're filled with an agony for them, if you can't bear that they should be lost, you'll find they too are uneasy. I hope you'll get into such a state, Spurgeon says, that you'll dream about your child or your hearer perishing for lack of Christ and start up at once and begin to cry, oh God, give me converts or I will die. Then, Spurgeon concludes, you will have converts. See, sharing starts with caring. I guess the Care Bears had it right all along. You know who the Care Bears are? I have five grandchildren, so I do. Four girls, one boy. And the Care Bears are those little bears in different colors and they have little hearts and rainbows come out of their heart and all that. And so sometimes they'll get together and say, we care a lot, we care a lot, right? Hey, sharing starts with caring. You have to care. You have to care about lost people. Paul did. And that's why he had a burden to bring the message to him. Number two, or number three rather, to preach effectively, we must be culturally relevant. 
I want you to notice in verse 28 of Acts 17, Paul quotes one of their own philosophers, one of their own poets, who says we are his offspring. See, the idea, uh, the idea of bringing the gospel is to build a bridge, not burn one. And I think a lot of times we wonder why people don't respond to our invitations to follow Christ. And I ask you, did it ever occur to you they didn't even know what you were talking about? I mean, if I stand up and say, listen, you need to be washed in the blood and become part of the body and be justified and sanctified, I might as well have come from another planet. I just told them to be washed in blood and get in some body. They don't know what I'm talking about. You say, well, Greg, are you suggesting we not use biblical terminology? No, I'm suggesting you not assume your listener understands what those words mean. And you gotta break them down. And he got to speak in a way people understand. Here was Paul. He was a great intellect. He was a great student of scripture. But he spoke in a way that the Athenians could understand. Often when Paul would stand before the various uh, political leaders, he would start with his personal testimony and then he would come to the message of the gospel. See the key to effective communication when sharing Jesus Christ is simplicity. I once saw Billy Graham being interviewed by David Frost. And Billy made a statement that surprised me. Billy said, I study to be simple. Anyone can speak over people's heads. To break it down in an understandable way sometimes takes a lot of work. But that is, you're gonna find a key to helping people see what it is you're saying to them and what you're asking them to do. Number four, our preaching must be biblical. Yes, I'm all for cultural relevance, <laughs> but not at the cost of biblical preaching. And I think in some ways, I've seen a lot of churches swing from one extreme to another. Maybe one extreme was very traditional, very religious, very disconnected from culture, and now some churches have swung so far the other way. We have the ultra cool, you know, rock worship bands and we've got the lights and we've got the technology and, and we've got all the cool stuff. But if we've missed the word of God in the midst of that, we've missed everything. So my suggestion is, yeah, keep it relevant. Connect to the culture. But don't neglect the word of God. Why? Because God says, my word will not return void, but it will prosper in the place that I send it. We build our messages on the word of God. Listen, my job when I step into the pulpit is to not make the Bible relevant. The Bible is relevant. And if I believe that, it'll make all the difference in the world to read scripture, to quote scripture. How about starting by taking a Bible into the pulpit, if you even have a pulpit? You know, we have a pulpit in our church. It's a super cool pulpit with a plasma screen in the front, and, and it, it, you know, it's great, but you know what? It's a pulpit, and we keep it there all the time. It's almost a symbol of saying, hey, center in our church is the teaching of God's Word. And then, you know, I take a Bible into the pulpit. I talked to a pastor who didn't take a Bible into his pulpit, and and I asked him, why, why don't you carry a Bible up there with you? He says, well, I don't, I don't want to make visitors uncomfortable. Nonsense. Visitors come to hear a preacher preach. You know, they come into a church, they expect a preacher to walk out with the Bible, quote from the Bible, explain the Bible. That's why they're in church. So we don't need to make the church something it isn't. 
just offer it to them and explain it to them and take the word of God up there with you. Number five, our message, if we want to communicate effectively, must focus on Jesus Christ crucified and risen. Look at verse 31 of Acts 17. Paul says, He's appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He's given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Listen, there is explosive power in the essential message of the gospel. I don't need to add to it. I don't need to take away from it. I don't need to gloss it over. I need to just proclaim it and stand back and watch God work. Paul said it's the power of God unto salvation. And that word power, as you know, is a word that translates out to be explosive. Root word dunamis. There's explosive power in the message. And, and here's the key. When you're sharing the gospel, and by the way, it, I believe that a pastor needs to teach the word of God. I don't think we need to evangelize our people every week. Teach them the word of God. I like to work through books of the Bible. I like to teach verse by verse and find the context of what is being said. But I've found that I can always put a little evangelistic hook at the end of every message, no matter what the topic. Always find a little hook, save it, and you know, and then when you get to that point, explain what it is to believe in Jesus. But one thing I always remember to say is I talk about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Because Paul says, I don't want to know anything else among you except Christ and Him crucified. But here's the problem. Sometimes in our attempts to cross over, we don't bring the crossover. So remember the cross. Years ago, I was in Billy Graham's home having lunch and that was an amazing honor. And I had the opportunity to spend a lot of time with him toward the end of his ministry. That's one of the reasons I was here with him in Georgia when he did his great crusade. And uh, he asked me to actually help him with some of his message preparation uh, in illustrations. I was just starting my evangelistic preaching then, so I would get current events and things going on, and I would put them into messages that he was giving. And so I was at his house for lunch, and, and you know, whenever I was around Billy, I was intimidated because he was Billy Graham, right? And I couldn't forget that. And so we're sitting in his home there in Montreat, North Carolina, and his wife Ruth made a wonderful meal for us, chicken and collard greens and black-eyed peas, all that good stuff. And uh, so I'm sitting there trying to think of something to ask Billy. And my mind's going blank. i got to ask him a question. What do I ask him? Suddenly I thought of one. I said, Billy, if an older Billy Graham could speak to a younger Billy Graham, what advice would you give yourself? Without missing a beat, he said, I would preach more on the cross of Christ and the blood because that's where the power is. I thought, wow, never forgot that. I'm quoting it many years later. Remember that, the cross of Christ and the blood, that's where the power is. And so here is Paul now bringing the message to these people. And you know, an interesting thing to note is it wasn't a huge response, was it? Uh, on the day of Pentecost, of course, thousands believed. Uh, we know 3,000 believed. And then when Peter preached later in Acts 4, 5,000 believed. And I bring that up because sometimes people say, well, I'm not into numbers. Well, God is. He gave us numbers. You know, sometimes people set up a false dichotomy and they'll say, well, I'm into personal evangelism, not mass evangelism. 
But uh, listen, God's into both. And, and we have found that in our evangelistic events, like this crusade we're gonna be holding, that most of those people that end up in that event are brought by a friend. So it's personal evangelism. And really the believer does most of the heavy lifting and getting them there and praying for them. And, and then I have the easy job of calling them to Christ. But uh, sometimes a lot respond and sometimes a, few, sometimes a few respond. In fact, in this particular story, only a handful believed. But listen, my job is not to save people. I've never saved anyone and I never will. My job is to faithfully proclaim the gospel and leave the results in the hands of God. But here's why when we give invitations for people to come to Christ, they often don't respond. Number one, because they don't even understand what the gospel is because we've made it far too complex. We haven't broken it down in a way for them to wrap their minds around. And number two, when we ask them to make a stand, and there's a lot of ways to call people to Christ, right? You can have them walk down an aisle while you sing a song. You can have them stand in their seat. You can lead them in a prayer. You can send them over to a room somewhere. Uh, however you do it, I do think it's important to call people to Christ. But a lot of times people don't understand what you're asking them to do. So when I'm giving an evangelistic message, really from the beginning, I preach for a decision. And I kind of let them know what I'm gonna do. Right in the middle of the message, I might say, and that's why in a few moments I'm gonna ask you, if you want your sin forgiven and you want a relationship with God, I'm gonna ask you in a few moments to get up out of your seat, walk down this aisle, and stand in the front here, and I'll lead you in a prayer when you get here. So I might mention that a couple more times. So then when I get to the actual invitation itself, I break it down. And it, let's just say I'm asking them to come forward. I, I'll say, I'm gonna ask you to get up out of your seat, walk down this aisle, stand in front of this platform, and I'm gonna lead you in a prayer. Now you might ask, why do I need to walk down that aisle? Well, because Jesus said, if you will acknowledge me before people, I'll acknowledge you before the Father and the angels in heaven. But if you deny him before people, he'll deny you before the Father and the angels. This is a way to acknowledge him. I don't wanna give the idea that Walking down an aisle will save them. Believing in Jesus will save them. But I'll say this is a way to acknowledge him. And when I give an invitation, I don't make it so generic that it becomes meaningless. And I've heard some invitations that they start with, if you want to ask Jesus to come into your life, I want you to get up and come. If you want to make a recommitment to Christ, you get up and come, that's fine. If you want to come with the person who's coming, you get up and come. I've actually heard this. If you want to join the choir, you get up and come. If you want to join the church, get up and come. Why don't you just say, if you want to examine the pulpit more closely, get up and come. See, you can so water an invitation down, it becomes largely meaningless. I like the tension of an invitation where I'm saying, if you want to turn from your sin and believe in Jesus, you get up and come down here. And see, that's how to create an evangelistic culture in your church. When people know that you're gonna throw the net, so to speak, they're gonna think about bringing their friends out more often. And without apology, I say to our folks, hey, you know me, I'm gonna give people an opportunity to accept Christ. So bring people that don't know the Lord. You sort of develop that culture. And I'll tell you, when people accept Christ in a service, I find that it just brings a lot of excitement to your church. 
You show me a church that doesn't have a constant flow of new believers coming in and I'll show you a church that is stagnating. Listen, new believers are the lifeblood of the church. We need them and they need us. New believers need older believers to stabilize them. Listen, older believers need younger believers to revitalize them. Because sometimes we start taking the great truths of God's word for granted. But when we see them through a young believer's eyes, man, it just makes all the difference. It's like going to Disneyland or Disney World with adults or with kids. If you go to Disneyland with adults, hey man, it's a drag. For starters, it's so stinking expensive. What is it, like $1,000 to get in now? And so you're already complaining about that. And with you with adults, they'll, they'll say, well, you want to go on a ride? No, I don't want to wait that long. Let's go eat. Then you go and eat, and you walk out of the restaurant, and you say, is there a Napland here? I know there's Adventureland, and Napland would be good, you know. And you know, you see the people in the costumes, oh, it must be hot inside of those things. You're very analytical. Now go to Disneyland with a child. See it through their eyes. And it's a whole new world, as the song says. And I find when you bring new believers in and their excitement is there, it's sort of contagious. You know when you're preaching, they're actually responding to the preacher instead of falling asleep. And they're amening, yes, oh wow, they're getting it. And then the person sitting next to the excited person, they're getting revitalized, see? That's why we need new believers in our church. We have a choice before us, evangelize or fossilize. But here's the thing. We need to leave it all in the hands of God. I mentioned how a relatively small group of people believed, verse 34, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead. Some mocked, others said, we'll hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed, among them Dionysius the Areopagite. And uh, even the great apostle Paul had days when the response was minimal. You say, well, Greg, I don't want to give an invitation and have no one come. Oh, I've done that. <laughs> it's not that bad. So you say, come and no one comes. That's all right. What about those times when a bunch come? How exciting that is. So we just want to keep throwing that net and giving people an opportunity to believe. And remember this. Jesus said, pray the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into his harvest. It's his harvest. It's not ours. And that final day when we stand before God, it's not going to be about who had the biggest church. It's going to be about faithfulness. He's not going to say, well done, good and successful servant, but rather, well done, good and what? Faithful servant. So you be faithful. You know, I heard about a preacher that came to Spurgeon when he was in his prime, and this preacher had a very small congregation, and of course, Spurgeon had what was what we would call today a mega church of multiple thousands. And uh, the young preacher said to Spurgeon, I wish you had a church as large as yours. And Spurgeon said, well, how many people attend your congregation? The man said, 80. Spurgeon said, I think that's enough to give an account of on the day of judgment. Well, since you put it that way. Be not many teachers knowing we will receive the greater judgment. It's an honor to step into the pulpit and represent God. It's a privilege. Don't take it lightly. And I pray that we'll all be faithful to bring his word because 
This is the only message that's gonna change people's lives and it's the only message that's gonna change the course of our country and it's really the only hope. So you guys are on the front lines and I pray God will continue to bless and use you for his glory and I hope that you'll support us in this crusade that we're doing in the month of September and get your church involved. You know the cool thing about a crusade is it functions as sort of a catalyst, something for people to work toward. And what we have found is churches grow numerically in direct proportion to their involvement with the crusade. In other words, if a church just gives a token involvement and maybe puts flyers on the back and mention it, you know, people will maybe come back to that church. But we found that most of the new converts uh, that believe end up in the church of the person who brought them. So even if you're a supporting church close to where that new believer lives, they're gonna end up in the church of the person who took them to the crusade. So if your people engage and start praying about people they can bring and bring their friends and bring their coworkers and bring their neighbors uh, with them and those people accept Christ, those folks will end up in your church. But if we could just sort of broaden our thinking a little bit and not worry so much about if our church grows and instead think about the church growing, it can be a whole new paradigm. Sometimes we're just so busy arguing over minutia, we're missing the big picture. The old country preacher Vance Havner once said, if we're too busy using our sickles on each other, we're gonna miss the harvest. And let's stop all this bickering and arguing on secondary issues and pull together for what really matters. We're living in a very dark culture that desperately needs to hear the gospel. Let's pull together and let's see what the Lord will do. It's Atlanta's only hope, it's Georgia's only hope, it's California's only hope, it's America's only hope, it's the world's only hope, Jesus Christ. Harvest Georgia is coming, where people find hope in a relationship with Christ. And I want you to know, no matter what you have done wrong in your life, God can and will forgive you if you will turn to Him. Bring someone who needs to meet Christ to Harvest Georgia with Greg Laurie at Infinite Energy Arena, September 23rd through 25th. It's free. Make the call now. The gospel is only good news if it gets there on time. Get the message out. Georgia.harvest.org.